I want to start by saying I sure appreciate Brian and the leadership he and the other musicians are giving us in worship these days. Thank you so much. So what did you learn from the Bluebell drought of 2015? You know, some things make life unbearable. You, uh, if you're relatively new here, um, I like Bluebell fairly well. Um, and um, I learned a little bit by the fact that we couldn't just go out and get it, where we placed our faith in a creamery from Brenham. We learned that may not be wise. Take your Bibles, James chapter 1. James chapter 1. I'm intrigued these days as I look at American society and on a little more of a focused gaze, I'm looking into the religious culture of the American society of the 21st century, and I'm taken with the way we look at wealth. I'm not so sure that we as a Christian population uh, do well with helping our world think about riches and wealth. Two weeks ago, I asked you to memorize two things. Actually, it's a statement and a question. What's the first? Anybody remember? This is test day, so what's the first statement I ask you? What, th- this is a test, all right? So I gave you a little hint. Some of you picked up. All right, and the second, which was the question, was what? Where is God in this? So we're looking at James's letter. Uh, I have said publicly now for a couple of weeks that I think actually James's letter probably started off as a sermon of sorts and found its way to print and found its way across Christendom of those early days of the Christian enterprise, if you will, in the first century. James has begun his little letter to us highlighting a basic truth, and that is that when we come up against things in life that test us, those tribulations, those trials, those problems that we have, we come up against those things that we find relatively quickly or really whenever we find it, we get to the point that we recognize this is bigger than me, and it forces us then to take perspective on it. James has said... Consider it all joy when you encounter these trials. And that's a perspective statement. Make the mental uh, disciplinary step that you have to go to say, okay, I take that situation. I recognize that it's bigger than me. This is a test. So what do I do with that? And the immediate question then needs to be, where is God in this test? I want to add a third piece of this now. Uh, and I'd like for you to memorize this one too. It also is a question. And the question is, where is my faith? It is tongue-in-cheek a little bit that I ask you what you learned from the Bluebell drought of 2015. Uh, here's what I learned. Get a full freezer and guard your freezer. Because you can't count on the little creamery out of Brenham to carry you through. That's tongue-in-cheek. 
But the reality is the various places that we choose to place our faith about stuff and life reveals something of our spiritual condition. I'll say it this way. The way we handle wealth definitively impacts our spiritual formation. My dad used to say a number of things. I'll give you two statements on the front end of this that he used to say. The first one, I haven't seen if it's true or not. It has not been true to this point. Here's the first thing. We were, you know that I had three kids, two boys and a girl. The girl ate as much as the boys. And in the early years of our adult life and these kids started coming into our family and then they started growing Uh, I discovered that three children have a way of eating you out of house and home. And my dad took me to play golf one day, and I guess my kids were probably in elementary school. Brandon might have been in middle school by that time. And my dad made this comment as we were going to play golf, and he knew that he was going to have to pay for my golf that day because my kids were eating me out of house and home. And he said, you know, Mark, one of these days you're going to get to a point and you're going to look around and you go, where did all this money come from? I hadn't reached that day yet. I'm holding out hope that maybe he knew what he was talking about. Uh, So I'll give him a C on that one. But I want to give him an A plus on this one. Dad regularly said to us, if you don't learn to control your money, your money will control you. Let me tell you something, that's gold right there. And I've seen in my own experience and I've seen in the experience of other people who just refused to take control of their financial situation in their life and it just tore them up. Now, I I probably should have started this way, but I wanted to get your attention enough to be able to alleviate a little bit of concern you might have. You can grab your wallet if you feel comfortable doing that and you can be sure that I'm not trying to get into your pocket today. It's dangerous for a preacher to talk about money from the pulpit because people start thinking he's trying to get into their pocket. I'm not trying to get into your pocket. I'm trying to get into your head today. And better yet, I'd like to see God's Word get into your heart. Not so much about the way you spend money, although that could be part of this. It's more about the way you view money. The way we handle wealth definitively impacts our spiritual formation. Or to say it another way, your faith has to work in your money. See, we're in this study of James's letter where James is regularly emphasizing for us that our faith, more than just a body of information in our head and more than just this set of beliefs that we say that we adopt, our faith has to get down into our hands and our feet and it has to affect the way we live. And our faith in this particular case, as we look at this little stretch of Scripture this morning, is having to do with how we view wealth or the lack of it. So we find ourselves here in James chapter 1 and verses 9 through 11. I'm going to read those, but let me, before I go to read those, let me back it up a little bit and just underscore again what we've seen in this little letter so far. James in verse 5, or verse 2 and following, gives us that perspective statement. When you run into problems in life, you recognize this is a test, and that test moves us to ask the question, okay, so if it's beyond me, then where is God in this? I made this statement very clearly, I hope, and that is either God sent those trials to you or he has allowed those trials to come to you. 
And whichever of those happens to be true at the moment, he gives us the next step of perception, and that is that we see those things, we count it all joy. It is this opportunity for us to accept the trial. That doesn't make sense for us most of the time. And so James gives us the little bit of information we need to make sense of the perspective statement when he says that those trials have a way and they are designed to move us forward in our spiritual growth and development. Our spiritual formation, that process of becoming more like Jesus Christ is carried further through those trials. That is, if you take the right perspective on them. And so now James comes down to verse 9, 10, and 11, and he gives us an illustration of what that looks like. Now, I need to tell you this. It's more than just an illustration. He is coming to, as if he's saying, okay, so I know that I'm giving you some tough concepts, so let me put this out there so that you can wrap your mind around it in a very practical sense. Let's talk about money and the trials that come with it. But he's not just going to do that. He's also setting up for us one of the major themes of the rest of this little letter of James, and that is how we handle our money. But he starts off by giving us this piece of input. Verse 9, let the lowly brother, that is poor. The word very definitively means poor. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. You see the perspective There you see the contrast between these two and it's like he turns it on its head. He gives us things that don't seem to go together. Exalt and uh, be happy, glorify essentially in the fact that you don't have resource. And if you do have resource, exalt in the fact that you are humiliated. That makes sense. But let's keep reading. Verse 10, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a a flower of the grass, he will pass away. A perspective statement. Verse 11, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuit. It almost sounds like James was one of the original members of the Occupy movement. You remember that movement a few years ago? We, in old days, we had a name for people who did that Occupy. So you remember what they did? They'd go in, they'd take over parks, and they'd you know, get in front of businesses and chain themselves to doors and all that as they protest against people with money. We used to call people like that squatters or criminals. But something about our day and age, that same cry that says that top 1% of earners in our American society ought to be taxed more than the people on the bottom side. There's something about our society that says, I don't have enough, so I want you to pay. That concerns me. Concerns me about the way we look at wealth. And I think, and I'm afraid, that that whole mentality just kind of slips into the church. Well, I know that it does because part of the reason for James writing this, he's given us an example, but he's taken an example straight out of their life and the common thoughts about wealth in his day have invaded this fledgling group of people, these first Christians. They begin to adopt the ideas of society and they become ideals for them. So let's look at what he has to say in all of this. 
boast. Let the lowly brother boast. It ties in with that discussion about count it all joy that we saw up there a little bit earlier. And James, with that, pulls all of this together as a single kind of an argument, a single kind of a statement. And he draws the distinction between the poor and the ones who are rich, wealthy, we might say. And both of them have their perspective that they need to bring into it. But how do you get to that perspective? I, I, I think the best way for us to say this is that James is emphasizing for them, keep the end in mind. If you happen to be the one who has no resource or limited resource, James would say to you, keep the end in mind. You don't have it today, but that doesn't mean that God has died. For those who do have it today, it doesn't make sense that they might be humiliated or to accept humiliation, but he says that is the end. Keep the end in mind. I'll explain that a little better in just a second. Let me just say this. I I think James gives this illustration for us for four basic reasons. First of all, he's drawing from a condition in the early church that just touches straight to the heart. You know the best preaching that anybody can do is the kind of preaching that takes divine truth and just injects it straight into the heart of everyday life. That's what he does here. First century Greco-Roman society, it is estimated that 90% of the Roman Empire inhabitants, including the Jews at this point and these Jewish Christians, some 90% of them lived at or below the poverty level. There was no middle class in those days in Roman society. There were those who had, and then the vast majority of those who did not have. And a big group of those, the the primary makeup of the early church seems to have been those who did not have significant resources. So James speaks into that, and he is trying to illustrate this basic truth of the Christian life, and that is when you come up against... trials and struggles in life and you don't have the answers, you can find God in that. But now he's throwing in this little, where's your faith in that? Are you placing your faith in yourself or in the system? Are you placing your faith somewhere in there with somebody's going to come through for me and may or may not be God in the process? I think our Christian, not Christian, but our American lifestyle is bent towards materialism. We just want more. One smart guy said the only reason the average American doesn't own an elephant is because they haven't been offered an elephant for low money down and easy monthly payments. How true is that? How how much do we need to survive and yet how much do we have? On a regular basis, we have people come through our church office and whether they're on the level or not, regularly say, I don't even have money for food. Is that true in your house? Are you one of those people who you're not really sure what you're going to do for lunch today because you don't have the resource to get it? Most of us will go home to cabinets full of food. Some of it has been there long enough that it's expired. 
but not to worry because we have faith in Walmart or HEB or Market Basket or Kroger or even Dollar General. We don't really need to trust God because we have full cabinets. James writes into a world that didn't have HEBs. He writes into a world where those Christian people who are already being targeted by the time he writes this, who didn't have the assurances that tomorrow was going to be okay. And in that Roman world into which he writes the message that he has for those people who have nothing, the vast majority of those that would be in the church to whom he's writing, he says this to them, keep this in mind that in the end, this trial, this money problem you have won't matter a bit because where you're going is a place of incredible untold value. The message that he has for those who don't have enough is maintain your perspective. How hard is that for you to do? In those times that your resource seems to be dwindling a little bit, on those rare occasions for you, or maybe it's the regular occasion for you, that you have more month than you have money left. What is your perspective in that? James would say to maintain your perspective. Verse 9 again, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. But James also takes that a next step. He corrects one of the errors in thinking in first century Greco-Roman and especially Christian society. And that was this idea that those people who were wealthy, that 10% that we talked about just a moment ago, that those people in the first century who had wealth, had wealth because of divine favor. In other words, the gods, if they were not Christian, or God himself, if they were, had blessed them with all of this resource. We find that attitude in our society today. We say it different ways. We say the good stuff we have comes from God. God really blessed me. I said that this morning about our grandson. God blessed us as a family with the way he brought them through. But you know the reality is that a lot of people who have wealth have nothing to do with God. A lot of people who don't have wealth are some of the most godly people we know. And that was true in first century Greco-Roman society in the first century early Christian church. We find this idea that gets out there that is somehow if somebody's got stuff, it's because the gods, the divine favor is on them. James says to them, not so. And he says, keep in mind the end. Keep the end at the front of your perspective. And so he elaborates on this one. It's interesting that we get just one verse of the poor people, even though that's who he's really talking to. And then this rest of it that goes to those rich, and some of them would have been in the church, I'm sure. And the rich and his humiliation, because light, and now he gives these reasons, this perspective. Like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. We went on vacation in, uh, when was that that we went to Slow Death? First part of August, right? 
And we were in this stretch of time around here where it was 4,000 degrees during the day. You remember that in August? And no rain. So we came home to shrubbery in the front of our house that had just been torched by the sun. We left and it was green. We came back a week later and it was brown, ugly, dead. That's the picture that he writes here. And the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. What James is saying to those who are the rich in their church, you can't count on that lasting forever. So don't get all high and mighty about what you have today, he would say. In other words... He might say it this way, if you have more than enough, maintain perspective. You see now why I'm saying I'm not trying to get into your wallet. This is not one of those things where the preacher says we're going to preach on money and then we're going to lock the doors and we're not going to let anybody out until we get $10 million in offerings today. That's not what this is. I'll never do that. You don't ever have to worry about that from me because I believe that the Holy Spirit can do a better job in getting into your wallet through your heart than I can through your ears. But James is saying, whether you have or have not, keep the end in mind. Maintain your perspective through all of this. It was Malcolm Ford who who has been given credit for the statement that says, he who dies with the most toys, how's that finish? Wins. Typical American entrepreneurial kind of statement. He who dies with the most toys wins wins. Some other smart guy corrected that for him. And in line with what James is saying here, modified Forbes' statement to say this, he who dies with the most toys still dies. You notice you never see a hearse with a casket in the back pulling a U-Haul full of junk. James says, keep your perspective. If you have a bunch, remember that there's more to life than that. If you don't have enough, keep your perspective to remember that God has more for you than just the junk that you so desperately want. Thirdly, James writes this because he's trying to correct this error that occurs in the early church, and that is that mentality in the community at large has begun to invade the church. And those people in Roman society who looked with disgust and looked with envy at the people who had are now inside the church and it's beginning to be a cancer inside the church, this whole idea of materialism and I need more and I don't have it and so it creates this problem for me and I don't know where God is in it. Where's your faith? We're going to find that. We get to chapter 2, verse 1. Let me just read this. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For a man, if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing, etc., we're going to get to that. But James would say those distinctions that you're drawing that are economically driven, keep the end in mind. Maintain your perspective. So James ultimately moves to get them to some real applicable kind of stuff. One of the greatest struggle areas that we face 
is with our finances, with our resources. He would say maintain perspective. So what is the perspective that we should maintain? He's already pointed us directly to it. Those things that come against us in life. If you're poor and you don't have enough resource and that's a struggle for you, or if you're, see, I hate to say rich because, you know, rich is what somebody else is. So if you have plenty of resource in your life and you don't consider yourself rich but you're pretty well resourced, if that's you, then, then what do we do with that? I know that there are problems that come with that. We think that the answer to everything is have more money. Let me tell you something. One of my best friends in this world, he's the guy that I tend to go to when I have real issues. Smart guy, very successful. That's not why I go to him. I go to him because he's, he's a friend of mine. He, he knows me. And he's seen me at my worst. Not from this church, another one. Not that I don't have good friends here, but this guy, you know, it's a life friendship. He owns a company. It's a medium-sized company, I guess, probably 100, maybe 150 people, employees. One of the things that I found is true with him, he, he didn't need anything, by the way. He's got enough money, I'm sure, to live out his days. Do you know what keeps him up at night? How does this decision affect the lives of those hundred plus people that work for me? See, I never would have dreamed that that's a problem that wealthy people have. A lot of wealthy people are just more concerned about how they're going to hang on to it. Maintain perspective. The goal of all of that stuff in our life, no matter where you find yourself on that economic scale, the goal of the trials that you face is to make you more like Christ. That's what James has said here. But we lose that perspective and we let the problems become bigger than what they are. So the question that I have for you here is what, what, what is the perspective that you maintain in your life as it relates to your wealth? Money's not the key. If making money is the biggest impact and important thing in your life, you're missing what life is all about. James would say to you, the end will haunt you. So back to my dad. Make peace with your money. Learn to control your money or it will control you. So let's come back and let's pull the whole thing in as I close today. First of all, to get the context that he's talking about here, how do you handle the trials of your life? Where is the perspective that you bring into those trials? Let, this is the where's God in this thing. Let me just take you back just to let you know how I came to work through some of the stuff that I'm preaching these days. Uh, it's been five years or so ago now, something like that. Uh, I had back surgery. I'd been struggling through some real issues with my back. I'd had multiple back injuries while I was growing up and playing sports and stuff. And uh, finally, it reached the point that I had to go in and have back surgery. That, that spin up to that was its own deal. But about five weeks after I had back surgery, I was still in that, that point there where I was already working, even though I wasn't really supposed to be working. And so I was kind of in my mind going, okay, I got this licked. Here we go. Uh, and so I had, I reached that point where I had to get my driver's license updated. Now, the place that we lived at the time had one small driver's license office. The whole office was about the size of the stage and it serviced 
200 to 300,000 people in that area. And that's not an, that, that is the truth. That was the closest one. The next closest one was 40 or 50 miles away, and it was the same kind of deal. And so I had to go in to do that. Well, you could do it online. And so I had to go in and get my driver's license updated. And I knew because it was such a small office and so many people being serviced that I better get there early. And so I got there early before it even opened, and already the line was out the door. And so I'm thinking to myself, okay, so I need to get this done so that means I'm going to have to stay here. But the words of my wife, not my doctor, but my wife were, don't go up there and just stand in line. You need to sit down. You know, you take care of your back. You... And, and so I get up there and I'm standing in line and I stand there for well over an hour and a half. And by the hour and a half, I finally get into the building and I don't remember now the exact sequence of it, but here's the, the, the elements of the sequence were this. I, hour and a half in, I get in, I can hear what's going on in there. There's one person working that day. Now, that's what we call the road travel curse, okay? So I'm in line, and after an hour and a half, this person makes the announcement, puts the, the sign up on her little desk-type thing there, break. So she goes to break. Now... Um, I don't always do things like a preacher should. And worse than the doing things, I don't always think like a preacher should, right? So I don't mind getting up here and talk to you and preach to you about love your neighbor, treat people, you know, that. But I got to tell you, in my head, I was thinking, I cannot believe some idiot would put, and you can just fill in the blank, because there were lots of idiots in my head that day. And so this girl goes off. She comes back from break. And so I've been there now for approaching two hours. And so we work a little bit, probably 30 minutes, and I'm just gradually moving forward because there's only one worker. All the while in my head, I'm planning ways. I should be careful. That might, I don't know what statute of limitations are, so I'll just tell you. Uh, I was not thinking good preacher thoughts. I certainly was not thinking this is a test. And so after two hours, two and a half hours maybe, the computer goes down. And the nice, sweet girl behind the deal says, our computer's down. We don't really know how long it's going to take. This is a, a problem in Austin. It's not our problem. And so if you would like to stay, you can keep your place in line. But if you'd like to come back someday, that'd be fine. I'm thinking, I've invested all of these hours already. And of course, I'm, by now, my back's screaming. And so I start thinking about people in Austin and what good ways. And they finally comes up. At, I don't remember how many. It was over an hour that the computers were down. And some people left, but most people didn't. And I get third from the front when it's working again. And the girl says, I got to go to lunch. Now, I got to tell you, this is a test, not in my thinking. Where's God in this? Certainly not in my thinking. Where's my faith? Now, that one I was thinking about because I was thinking about how all of the wicked ways that I could make people pay for that. Four hours and 45 minutes after I got there, I finally got my driver's license updated. And it took me a long time to get my spiritual attitude straight. How is it? What is the driver's license problem for you? Because you all have one of those. 
The reality is, so many that back to the context of what James is saying here, so many of us come to that issue of handling resources, our wealth, if you will, and that's where we fight our battles. Some of us fight them because we don't have enough, but some of them fight us because we have more than enough. What are you willing to do to get more money? True story. 20 years ago, a guy, a student at a university, went to a marketing company and offered to sell his soul to them, and they paid him $1,300 for it, for the advertising rights. <laughs> George W. Truett, a great preacher of Baptist history in Texas, was invited out to a guy's house. It was a ranch, really. He took him into his ranch, and he took him to where he could see a room where he could see in all directions. And the guy pointed out, he said, you look out that way, and as far as you could see was just rolling hills and cattle all over the place. And the guy said to him, all that, as far as you can see, I own that. It's mine. Tritt was not really impressed. The guy turned him around and looked the other way, and he said, you see the line of trees out there? He said, all of that is even past that line, all those, that lumber out there, that's all mine. I, that's all mine. I'm sure it was not all that impressed. And over a period of time, he had him finally turned to 360 degrees. He said, everything you can see, as far as you can see, it's all mine. And Truett, smarter than the average duck, grabbed the guy, put his arm around him, and he said, uh, so what about everything that way? And he pointed up. He said, do you own everything there, too? The guy ducked his head. He said, well, no, I haven't really given that much thought. The words of Jesus and other places throughout Scripture would remind us how tragic it is to win at living and lose your soul. Where's God in your finances? So two truths and I'm done. Many Christians put more emphasis and commit more resources to their financial portfolio than they do to their spiritual formation. Let me say that a different way. Are you putting more time and energy into checking out your money than you are to growing spiritually? James would say, keep the end in mind. Maintain perspective because your money talks. The test question for you is, how do you respond to the need that is around you? So here's my request to you. A test, if you will, to take home with you. A prayer, to be exact. Let me encourage you this week, whether you have plenty or not enough, every time you handle money, whether it's swiping your card or paying cash for something or going online and paying bills, every time you handle money this week, I encourage you to pray this prayer. Father, as I handle this cash, remind me of the ultimate priorities in my life and take me deeper in my faith. How is it with you and money? Your money talks. Does your faith work? Let's pray. And Lord, we recognize that this is an area that stresses and stretches us. So we ask you to help us to be faithful to you. Where we are concerned about 
the trivialities of money, as important as they are in our lives. Give us that perspective that we need. Help us to always keep in mind the end of this life and the investments that we make both with our money and with our other resources. May you be glorified. For those who are here today and struggling, maybe serious financial trouble, bigger than they could ever create on their own, pray that you would show yourself to be real there. And if it's in your plan, if your best for them is to fix the money problems, we pray you'd do that. But in the midst of it, if your plan is to teach them to trust you, we pray that you would take as long as you have to for that message to get home. Use this time for, our, for your glory, for our benefit is our prayer in Christ's name.